Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Today, my guest on the Alpha Exchange is Chris Cole, the founder and CIO of Artemis Capital Management. On behalf of his investors, Chris has developed systematic and quantitative trading strategies in volatility. His long convexity approach enabled his investors to thrive through the 2008 great financial crisis. And through his deep dive research publications, Chris has made a real contribution to the industry's understanding of volatility. Chris was among the small number of investors that saw the instability that lurked beneath the market calm in 2017 and capitalized on it during the XIV meltdown in Feb 2018. His perspective on market risk-off events and the reflexivity of volatility is incredibly interesting and made for a fast-moving, really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Chris Cole. It is my pleasure today to be joined by Chris Cole, the founder and CIO of Artemis Capital Management. Chris, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Thanks, Dean. Thank you for having me on the show. So we're going to cover a lot of ground here today. We're going to dive into a topic that you've focused on for many, many years and is near and dear to my own heart, which is which is volatility. Before we do that, let's learn a little bit more about you and your career path. How is it you became interested in finance? And then just give us a little bit more about your background. Sure. Well, I have a very non-traditional background for the investment management industry. When I was younger, the only thing I formally studied was actually cinematography. And this was the intersection of technology and art. And I was mainly spent a lot of my late teens working on different film sets in Los Angeles. And it was only kind of during my later part of the career at USC Film School that I just randomly took an interest into options trading. I remember picking up a book by Larry McMillan and becoming just absolutely fascinated by it. And that became a kind of self-study program that eventually became a career. So I just independently on my own began doing the CFA program. And I decided to make a career switch really with this new fascination into derivatives and into finance. And by the time I started at Merrill Lynch, I was the only person in their analyst program to have a CFA and the only person to have an art degree. So I was very unique, non-traditional. The rare intersection of the art degree and a CFA. <laughs> and a CFA, that's right. I originally began in bond structuring, gained a reputation for working on some very difficult quantitative bond deals. And then they moved me over to derivative structuring, where I initially worked in rate derivatives and began structuring everything from interest rate swaps to swaptions and some very difficult structuring deals, including things as hard as pension obligation bonds. I was kind of part of a unique team over there that did a wide variety of things and really just kept trading on my own. I began designing systematic trading strategies and began taking the money in my own account and began applying my own independent ideas just with personal money and took a small amount of money, $100,000, $200,000, and grew that to several million throughout the financial crisis, trading my own systematic trading strategies. And that was the seed capital for Artemis. When you go back and you think about the initial fascination you had when you looked at derivatives and you looked at Macmillan's book, what was that? What was it, the vast number of relationships or the arbitrage boundaries that you can impose on options? What was it that really got you so interested at the beginning? What's amazing is looking at the world probabilistically. It just opened up this entire new kind of dimension of thinking that you're looking at nonlinear payoffs. 
you're not looking at things in terms of right or wrong or correct or wrong. You're looking at things in terms of the probability of occurrences and probability distributions of occurrences. And all of a sudden, I think when you begin looking at the world through the lens of a derivatives trader or through the lens of derivative structuring, it actually changes, permanently changes the way that you perceive reality. And I think that became very, very exciting to me. It, it changed the way I looked at everything from politics to dating. <laughs> so it just was uh, eye-opening to me. And I think that's what's exciting about derivatives as an arena. I remember I was at Lehman Brothers in the late 90s, and I was teaching a class to the incoming analysts. And I was the options guy, and I was trying to explain optionality. And I had this metaphor about getting married and the extinguishing of optionality, <laughs> sort of the early <laughs> exercise of an option. And I relayed that to my wife, who's my wife now for uh, 18 years, and she was none too pleased about my <laughs> it didn't uh, go too well. <laughs> my metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so the rate structuring earlier in your career, give us a sense as to the time frame that was, and then when you think back to the price of volatility in the rates market at the time you got started, maybe juxtaposed to now where we have an ongoing Fed-engineered suppression of interest rate volatility. What was it like when you first got started at Merrill? It's interesting because you go back then, and when I started in the industry, many institutions could still meet their return expectations just by buying corporate bonds. And yet yields kept dropping and dropping and dropping. This was through the early 2000s. And I think people really looked at this and were always saying, you could go back at any point in time and say it was a generational low in yields. <laughs> it's been true my entire career. So I could go back and almost say that I've never really experienced in my lifetime, much less my trading career, a true regime of higher interest rates. I mean, certainly there's been periods where the Fed has raised rates, where rates have been going higher. And there's just been this expectation but I mean, if you look at the overall trajectory of rates, uh, not only through my career, but my entire life of 30 plus years on this world, we've seen interest rates just grind lower and lower and lower. And that's just embedded in the expectations and, and the mindset. The other thing, too, is that very early on, coming of age in this regime where volatility was also artificially suppressed during that period of time. And we're, we're looking at a period of 2004 to early 2007 was when vol was very, very low. And there was this view, as there is a view today, that if vol goes to 30, you sell it. That was the commonplace view. And I think one of the things that made me successful in my personal trading was just the fact that I was able to look at other crises, other debt crises. I looked at the Great Depression and said, wow, you know, vol would have stayed over 80 for extended periods of time during the Great Depression. It is entirely possible for vol to go over 30, go over 50, and stay up that high if you're in a kind of deflationary debt spiral. And I think that type of insight and the designing of systematic strategies that could exploit that type of an insight is really what enabled me to make really life-changing returns for myself and my family during the period of 07 to 2009 that really gave me the ability to go out on my own and independently pursue my own business. Tell us a little bit more about the founding of Artemis and guide us through some of the investment principles that you bring each day to your trading and your investing. What are those principles? I think one of them is this sense of the degree to which volatility can be reflexive. I think you've done a wonderful job 
of articulating that notion. But how do you think about Artemis as a product that fits into the portfolio of an institutional investor or institutional allocator? What are you trying to accomplish for your end investors? Well, the mission of Artemis Capital as an organization is to create opportunity through chaos. Normally, chaos and entropy is a bad thing. It's damaging to institutions. It's damaging to lives. We want to find a way to take that change and that chaos and transform it into a gift to people. And if we do that correctly, that's going to enable them to maintain the money they need for retirement. It's going to enable them to not have to lay off teachers or employees during a rough period of time. We want to take change and we want to turn it into a gift to people. I think the philosophy of Artemis, which has always been from the get-go, is this view that we have all of these definitions of these different asset classes. People talk about bonds and stocks and all these different trading strategies in long short. I actually look at the world in a much more simplistic way. I think there's really only one relevant asset class, and that's volatility. And there's two ways to express that asset class. You can go short and long ball. The vast number of trading strategies decomposed to their raw essence are either short volatility. A short volatility is a bet on stability. It's a bet on mean reversion. Or they are long volatility. Long volatility is a bet that makes money or prospers from change. So there's very good strategies like value investing, for example. I always say Warren Buffett is the greatest short volatility trader in the world because value investing, where you're trying to buy something when the market artificially reduces it below its intrinsic value, is a mean reversionary strategy. A mean reversionary strategy assumes that markets revert to some sort of long-term mean. It assumes a resumption of some level of stability. So a lot of people think when I say short volatility, that's some sort of a bad name. There's smart short volatility and there's bad short volatility. Short volatility is where you're expressing an expectation of mean reversion. And the question is, is what type of margin of safety are you receiving for that expectation of stability? We specialize in strategies that are long volatility. So when there is a failure of that mean reversion expectation, when chaos and entropy reign, we want to make nonlinear returns. We don't want to make a one-for-one return. We want to make a 10-for-one return in the rare instance where regime change becomes a new normality. And this occurs during changes in the business cycle. It occurs during changes in new regimes. And the goal is for us to make nonlinear returns during these periods of regime change by going long volatility and being positively exposed to the chaos and the entropy. Now, it just so happens that the average institutional portfolio, people think they have all of these different asset classes. They have value stocks, and they have credit, and they have real estate, and they have private equity. But all of these asset classes decomposed are just different forms of short volatility. And the average institutional investor is kidding themselves when they fail to realize that all their diversification is really just diversification to the same short volatility asset class. Our job is to provide true diversification by exposure to that long volatility, 
but to do it in a way that doesn't bleed excessively. We want to be an insurance policy that pays you to own it. And that alpha should be generated through the business cycle during an entire revolution of change. So let me walk through a couple of things that you said as you were describing the strategy and the notion of, I think you were, you're channeling some Taleb there with anti-fragileness almost, to prosper from chaos. There's not a lot of portfolios that are really designed to prosper from chaos. And I think the reality is that the experience that some folks have had in trying to pay the rent, so to speak, to own optionality, but to somehow mitigate the bleed in the sideways, in the low vol periods, has been very, very challenging. The sort of history of tail risk funds are that, with some notable exceptions, but in general, the price of entry, the price paid for volatility relative to what's ultimately materialized, it's been a difficult proposition for folks to hang in there over time. I'm really glad you brought this up because that's definitely been true. If you look at the average tail risk fund, this kind of goes back in some ways even to funds that Taleb had managed back in the day, supposedly. But the average tail risk fund since 2012 is down 50 to 60%. Now, if you are going to make that back, you have to make over 100% returns. So the average tail risk fund is not an alpha vehicle. It's a pure insurance policy. But I would say that's my job as a manager. And I would say that has not been the experience among our investors. And I can't talk about our performance. But one of the things that's been really my job, and I think we've been very successful in this, is to provide a product that does the following, that has the kind of payoff in extreme market movements that mimics tail risk, but that is not bleeding 10 to 20% a year. So if you can just hold fort in the bull markets, hold stable, but then be exposed to the same nonlinearity in the bear markets, that is an alpha strategy. That's powerful. So there's no magic pill. You have to give up some things to get something. I think what we will sit back and say that our insurance is not on all the time. We're very dynamic in the way we size our exposures. So it's possible that, for example, a non-market event, we might not have the same payout that a tail risk fund does. But I think Artemis, through a variety of different ways, our job is to find a way to provide the kind of payout that a tail risk fund provides in a 2008, that 50 to 100% return, without the negative bleed associated with the other tail risk products. And I think we've been able to do that through a variety of different techniques and tools which are very, very innovative. So I take offense sometimes when people say, oh, you guys are tail risk insurance. You're not an alpha strategy. No, we are an alpha strategy. If you hold us through the business cycle, I think our goal is to be able to provide better returns than what an average hedge fund provides. But to do that, you can't be bleeding 10, 20% a year in low vol years like 2017. So it, it takes skill, and that's what our investors expect from us, and that's what we seek to deliver. And certainly the conditional correlation or negative correlation that I'm guessing your portfolio has to the broad risk complex, let's just say the S&P 500, is something that 
adds a lot of value in the context of an overall portfolio if you've got this element that is especially conditionally negatively correlated in down market shocks in how you build your portfolio adds it adds a lot to the construction one of the things that you had referenced just going into the financial crisis and I wanted to get your take on this the period i sort of put it post the us invasion of iraq in 2003 vol was still very high some of it was an after effect of the unwind of the tech bubble and the bankruptcy of Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia. There was a lot of accounting fraud. Markets had a pretty volatile summer of 2002. We got to 2003, we invaded Iraq, but then things really started to settle down. And by mid-2003, both implied and realized were coming down and they would only go lower over the next four years. Uh, we had this just period of epic quiet characterized as well by a big buildup in leverage, a lot of it in the investment banks themselves. When you look at the coiling of the spring, so to speak, the kind of Minsky philosophy of stability is itself a source of instability. And then in your trading strategy, in your investment process, how much do those macro considerations around leverage in the system and a buildup of risk how influenced is your strategy and are you by those types of observations? You know, Dean, we have two different types of ways of sourcing anti-fragility. And these macro factors really play a big role into one of those methods. Let me use an analogy. Let's just say that you're trying to buy insurance against fire. You're afraid of forest fires breaking out. Well, one of the ways that you could go about this is that you could just buy insurance all the time, and then you're bleeding tremendous amounts of money left and right. Another method, which is employed by the Forest Service, is you look at the underlying conditions that drive forest fires. So things like lots of dry kindling on the ground, when there's a heavy buildup of oils, when there's a lot of dry chaparral, when there are high winds, when there's a significant amount of dry heat. So when all of these factors come online at once, non-linearly, the probability of a forest fire increases dramatically. It is almost impossible to determine what the exact spark that will cause the fire is. So if you're trying to predict a forest fire, trying to chase around every person who might throw their cigarette out the door carelessly to start a fire, or trying to chase around every person who might leave their campfire unattended to start a fire, or where a lightning bolt might strike and start a fire. It's almost impossible to look at these random sparks that cause the fire. That's kind of the job of the media, to chase each of their sparks and overreact to the sparks. But I think if you're looking to build a model to understand when to buy insurance, you look at the underlying conditions when those underlying conditions come into effect all at once, the probability that any one of those random sparks becomes a gigantic forest fire is much, much greater. So one of the methods that we use is we employ nonlinear pattern matching predictive analytics and look at thousands upon thousands of data points across multiple decades that pattern match onto higher volatility. And you know, guess what? Many of the things that pattern match for higher volatility in a period like 08 also pattern match in a period like 1928. 
and they also pattern match in a period like 1998. This allows you to selectively and dynamically buy insurance intelligently in a way where you're maximizing your budget and you're buying it into a framework that is most efficient. And this is one of the ways that we've been able to carry this type of insurance at a positive carry. So absolutely, when I look at volatility, I see equity volatility as an interplay between liquidity, between credit, and between different macro asset class relationships. And when you see this interplay between these different factors, they follow very, very similar patterns that are fairly predictable over time. So absolutely, I think those factors come into play in a big way in our process. We're using computers to crunch a lot of data, a massive amount of data, more than I can handle in my brain alone, to understand these probabilities and to then actively price and buy specific options that we think can profit from them. One of the observations I think that is really relevant to the period of right now is this idea that even as uh, late as February of 2007, we had a VIX that was printing below 10, fell below 10 a couple times. And this is sort of back to this notion of the coiled spring. And I want to get your thoughts on both that observation as it was so close to the real onset of the of the crisis. I felt like this was a slow-moving event that certainly started in 2007. That's when a lot of the malfunctions started to surface. But it coincided with a VIX that was below 10. It's a it's almost paradoxical in the sense of it reflecting this notion of calm and this benign outlook, and yet we now understand it was a part of this coiled spring in, in the Minsky sense. And then last year, 2017, it seems like we had something quite similar. So maybe give some of your thoughts on what you saw in the period right before the great financial crisis, and then let's pivot to last year, because it does feel like last year is a critical input into what markets are grappling with right now, what certainly what happened in February. So start with 2007. What are your observations in that period that led into the financial crisis with respect to the pricing of optionality? I think most of that has been covered. Most of my observations from that period have also been covered ad nauseum. I think in retrospect, everyone knows this now. I think what was seen back then, and I was able to profit off of it, was the understanding of this buildup in debt and the understanding the effect of that buildup in leverage and what that could do to the system. And there was also, I think, a key observation that where most market participants, including some of the guys running the largest vol funds today, were short-selling vol at 30 back in the financial crisis. And I think there was a realization by at that time to say, well, I think it can go higher, much higher and stay higher. I think there's a lot of people that saw the buildup in leverage. I think there weren't that many people that actually looked at the situation and said, this buildup of leverage could facilitate a VIX above 50 for an extended period of time. And I think that was probably the secret back then to being able to transfer that knowledge about the leverage into an actionable opportunity. If we fast forward to today, there's differences today. So last year, I wrote a paper called Volatility in the Alchemy and Risk that really has been quoted and misquoted a lot. It's very humbling that it's been quoted so much. I think the media has also misquoted it. 
but it talked about this image of the Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail, as an image for the reflexivity and volatility. And this idea of $1.5 trillion worth of short vol strategies that both drive volatility lower, where volatility is both an input and a driver of yield. And the lower vol goes, the more reflexivity drives vol lower. And the higher vol goes, the vice versa happens. The higher vol goes, the more vol reinforces in the higher dynamic. That paper was released last October. And I think at the very back of that paper, I sort of made a prediction. I said the markets are not correctly assessing the probability that volatility, and this is a direct quote, markets are not correctly assessing the probability that volatility reaches new all-time lows in the short term, VIX under 9, and new all-time highs in the long term, VIX over 80. The first part of that prediction came true. We actually saw VIX touch all-time lows in late 2017. Most people said that the paper was accurate in the sense that the February blow up, I think that's just an appetizer for what we'll see coming. I think we will see another regime where volatility goes over 80 again in the next few years. But I think it's very different. The drivers of that are going to be very different than what we experienced in 2008. It's closer in alignment to the type of market environment we saw in 87 than it is in 2008. I think many of the factors that we think, although in 2007, it was leverage. I think at this point in the cycle, it's going to be liquidity. Liquidity will be a key driver of potential volatility going forward. Obviously, we have the reduction of central banks, but we also have massive concentration, massive concentration of short volatility strategies in specific hedge funds and specific institutions where they are running strategies that are systematic in nature, that assume the existence of liquidity, during which the wrong type of volatility event, all of these strategies are going to be forced to deliver at the same time. If you have a massive delivering of all of these institutional systematic strategies at the same time, there's an assumption that the liquidity will be there, but it's not likely to be there if they all have to access it at once. And this is the crux of where we will see the next super volatility spike. It won't necessarily be driven from consumer leverage the way that we saw or housing debt. I think that liquidity gap could open up some of the problems in the corporate debt market. But I don't think the corporate debt market will lead the next crisis. I think this will be a follow-on factor that comes after an initial liquidity event. And we got a little taste of that. We got an appetizer of that in February during the blow up of XIV and the stupid short VIX ETPs, which was also, I think, correctly prophesized in that paper and many Artemis papers over the last couple of years. And to your credit, many of the writings that your organization has put out as well. I think it's really interesting to think about liquidity and this notion that markets are always there to allow you to get into and out of your positions at a reasonable price. I've been teaching a class on financial crisis and been doing some review on the 1987 stock market crash. And it's just a really amazing thing to go back and look at and get an appreciation for this role of portfolio insurance 
which I see so many similarities in what you've just put forth to what actually occurred with this product called portfolio insurance, one of which was the pure underestimation of the keyhole effect, right? Where everybody's trying to jam through the same trade at the same time. And then the second part of it, I think that seems to me to be similar to what some of the dynamics right now is portfolio insurance was designed to be effectively a put option that you didn't pay for. What's better? And that a lot of the systematic strategies, maybe you can walk through just how you look at, for example, the vol control universe, where insurance companies are managing to this vol input. I think your insights on the usage of volatility as the input and then the risks there, I think those are pretty significant insights. Why don't you, if you can, just walk through the kind of high level of what you see there in terms of how volatility is being used these days in portfolios? I think it's a really interesting point. And so in that paper from last year, I talk a little bit about, you look at the Markowitz portfolio theory, and it creates this view. There's this assumption that volatility accurately measures risk. It's an accurate proxy for risk. You want the best risk-adjusted return and an efficient return on different assets. And the way you measure the efficiency of return is by measuring the return against the volatility of an asset class, which is measured historically. But the problem is that in a world where rates have been held artificially low, many of the world's largest institutions have turned to systematic trading strategies that either implicitly or explicitly have sought to short volatility as a form of yield. So this could be either through selling puts directly or selling VIX futures. That's explicit shorting of volatility. Or it could be implicit shorting or implied shorting of volatility, which is the idea of where you're actually replicating a portfolio of short options with a systematic trading strategy. So vol targeting funds, for example, and risk parity funds are short various exposures that a portfolio of short options are, things like short gamma, things like short volatility, they're short correlation, even if they aren't directly shorting volatility through the form of a short option, they're replicating that exposure. Well, let's get away from all the Greek letters. At the end of the day, the way Markowitz viewed volatility was a statistic that measured something that was occurring on the field of risk. So it's like a statistic, like the way that an announcer would look at shots on goal or rebounds in a basketball game. Well, the problem is that volatility has been elevated from a statistic to a player on the field. Volatility is no longer describing the game. The price of volatility has become an input into the very models that are being used to sell the volatility. So volatility is no longer just a statistic measuring the game on the field. It is actually a player on the field impacting the game. When Vol makes this transition, all of a sudden we enter into a self-reflexivity. Lower Vol drives lower Vol. Higher Vol drives higher volatility. And this is the regime that we're in. And I think people sit back and they, they say, oh, wow, the VIX ETPs blew up. It's all said and done with. It's not, because there's a much bigger volatility trade out there that has not unwound yet. And if we continue to see higher interest rates, it is very likely that that volatility trade unwinds 
in an unorderly way. And you know, that's exactly what happened in 1987. Everyone sits back, they take away the wrong lesson from 87. Because they'll look at 1987, they blame it all on portfolio insurance. What people don't realize is that markets had already dropped 14% leading into the day that they dropped 20% in one day. It was actually higher interest rates that caused a liquidity and a leverage fire. And that fire then lit a barrel of short volatility nitroglycerin on fire that caused a catastrophic explosion. The comment on rates in the 87 crash, I think, is spot on. And what I've likened the 87 crash to is really a gigantic taper tantrum. It was one writ large where I think the 10-year had gotten up to 10.5% in short order. Inflation was rising and it was the, to me, the opportunity cost of being out of the risky asset and into the risk-free asset got to be unbearably low, <laughs> meaning it was too easy for folks to de-risk into something that offered a 10.5% yield. Most people do not understand that at the beginning of 1987, inflation was actually lower than it is today. It's incredible because we're talking yields going from 7 to 10%, but inflation was actually lower at the beginning of 1987 than it is today. What we saw was a 300 basis point pickup in inflation. And then that caused a 300 plus basis point pickup in nominal yields. And that was enough to cause a liquidity crisis that caused stress on credit, stress on interbank lending rates, and then caused a very disorderly unwind in the portfolio insurance trade. The liquidity is so thin today, and these strategies, these systematic shortfall strategies have been so levered by institutions desperate, desperate, like Pavlovian dogs, these big institutions desperate for 1% or 2% by selling anything they can get to get any incremental yield, that they have sown the seeds for their own problems later on. This is a funny question. What would be more damaging to the large institutions, the pension systems, would it be another 2008 where you have the stock market drop 50% or would it actually be a simultaneous 20% drop in stocks and bonds at the same time? Where in 2008, at least you had your treasury bonds perform. If stocks and bonds both drop 25%, it would be so horrible for many of the pension institutions. Volatility is one of the only asset classes that saves you in that environment. I just see the complacency. There's such a complacency out there. I mean, people sit back, you know, back in 2007, people said, oh, there's no way that housing markets are going to nationwide all drop at the same time. And today, people sit back with absolute certainty, saying that stocks and bonds are anti-correlated, and they're always going to provide excellent diversification. They sit back completely complacent, saying that passive investing offers higher return at lower cost, ignoring the fact that we have liquidity momentum effects. And then they passively sit back and they say, central banks can support markets indefinitely. And if you look across financial history, whether we're talking 1987 or beyond, you can see examples where these fallacies have been exposed in history. But you know, Dean, the big institutions, 
I think they're asleep at the wheel. And then as we wrap up here, and thank you, this has been an absolutely informative conversation, and I'm grateful for your time. What about for you in terms of research? You're very research-minded. Your notes are very complete. It seems like you go dark for a little bit, and then out comes a, a pretty substantial piece of research, a real deep dive that really nicely brings history history of markets and financial accidents into the analysis. What are some topics of research that you're, that you're focused on? Are there any other asset classes that you're really spending a lot of time on? What can you share with us? I think one of the things that's really interesting is that I definitely go dark for a while, but I'm always doing research. Yeah, I'm a full-time investment manager, and we spend a lot of our time focused on proprietary strategies for our clients. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing, we don't always release out to the public. But every once in a while, it's really fun to put a piece out there. I think the type of things I'm looking at right now is, as we've discussed, what are the assumptions that people have right now that are most likely to be broken in the next crisis? And the predominance of passive investing and the view that passive investing is a safe and effective, that it offers higher returns at lower costs, I actually think there's a massive risk to passive investing. And you know, I've done some work on this. I've looked at some of the work that Mike Green, who's a friend, and I talk a bit about this. He actually challenged me to do some work on the topic. But the idea that actually the predominance of passive investing is a driver for higher volatility. It actually crowds out alpha available to active managers. And you can model this. So there's this irony, because the Jack Bogleheads out there and the big institutions that are like passive investing, passive investing, it's more efficient. There's a tremendous irony because the more people jump into passive investing, the more that it is accepted, ironically, the more inefficient and dangerous markets become. And you can actually set up a model that proves this. I mean, it just makes perfect sense. Let's just imagine you have a drunk guy walking on the street. That drunk guy is the random ebb and flow of the market. And he is pushed in one direction or the other entirely based on flows. Now, active investors are paid to keep this drunk guy from wandering off a cliff or into the street or onto the highway. They're paid to get this guy home. That's what they're paid for. So at the end of the day, what we see is that the drunk guy, if he becomes so strong and so dominant, there's no ability to self-correct the active investors are not able to guide him because the active investors are so small and so puny that they have no effect. So the drunk man will wander in whatever direction he is pushed to some extreme. Now, it just so happens that that extreme has been up and up markets. If you have continual contributions, that natural drift will be towards higher markets. But guess what? We will now have a dominant form of passive investing right at the time when all the baby boomers are retiring. So all of a sudden, this drunk guy is wandering on his own, unencumbered by any sober guides, and he's going to run headfirst into a massive amount of downward pressure from retirees selling off their stock holdings. So passive investing will be a source of risk and destabilization. It's actually a danger. It's an inefficiency. And you can mathematically model this. So I think this is something that's really something that people aren't paying attention to. 
And obviously we talked about volatility being a player on the field and some of the views that liquidity will always be there is another a big myth, I think, that will be burst in the next crisis. Well, we will leave it there. Chris, it's been a real pleasure, and we thank you for your time. Chris, Chris Cole is the founder and CIO of Artemis Capital Management. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Bye.